audio invasion is upon us. In this corner with Brian Campbell is back and ready to uncork a ghetto blaster dose of the untraceable, the unmistakable performance enhancing audio. Look, you're not going to find this on any wellness policy violations anytime soon. It's the Brian Campbell, the man with the plan, the voice that you hear returning with bonus audio from the world of pro wrestling. I know what you're saying. Hey, BC. Wednesday is typically the day where you tag in Handsome Nick and the Silver King for the This Week in WWE edition. But hang tight, folks. That audio will come a day late this week, along with a preview of Sunday's TLC pay-per-view and a chat with WWE Cruiserweight Champion Kalisto. As always, look, that's something you don't want to miss. But you know the rap sheet that the In This Corner podcast is starting to produce when it comes to getting great guests. I've been sitting here for 10 minutes now looking over this rap sheet of yours i just can't believe it it's a reputation you might say is too legit to quit or even touch you're gonna touch me on mc hammer kid you can't touch this well this week's bonus pod welcomes one of the most iconic characters and heels in wwe history ted dibiase yes the million dollar man to talk about his legendary career including a flurry of behind the scenes nuggets This is good stuff, folks, talking about working with everyone from Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Randy Savage to the NWO. DiBiase will also chat about his upcoming movie, The Price of Fame, which is something you're going to want to check out. And I got to tell you, this interview had me fired up from the very beginning. I went back and watched the first ever promo that Ted cut upon joining the WWE in the late 1980s and taking on that million-dollar man gimmick. I'm Ted DiBiase. I'm the million-dollar man. And you know, as I travel around this fair country of ours, I run into a lot of people who aren't happy with the way I spend my money. They say that money is the root of all evil. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's not. Because you see, with enough of this right here, I can buy anything. I can have anything I want. I can buy happiness. I can buy love. And if I want to, I can even buy you. (laughs) How do you not get fired up for that? Great stuff from a true legend of the business. But before Nick Costos and I toss it on over to Ted, let me remind you to let your voice be heard regarding the In This Corner podcast. If there's something today that you hear that you like, if you see something, say something. Please head on over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. Hey, shout us out on social media using that hashtag In This corner also check out the other offerings from the podcast this week not just the aforementioned this week in wwe show featuring that interview with kalisto but we had one heck of a boxing show earlier this week as rafe bartholomew joined me to address the state of the junior welterweight division i'm sorry junior middleweight after a wild weekend of fights a a trio of championship bouts on showtime we also chatted with wbc 154 pound champion jermel charlo who pulled no punches in talking about his pursuit of all four belts you're going to want to hear that. But now it's time for ITC's version of a TED Talk. Yes, as the one and only MDM himself sits down with the TBC and the Greek. You're going to love this. Enjoy. If you don't think I'm fired up for our guest this week, well, you don't know me. We are pleased to welcome in for my money. And believe me, that pun was intended. The greatest heel of my 80s prime pro wrestling fandom Everyone has a price for the In This Corner podcast, and they also had a price for the Million Dollar Man. It's Ted DiBiase. Welcome to the show. I won't attempt to butcher your iconic evil laugh, Ted, because I'm afraid of what it'll do to my vocal cords. But the pleasure is all on this side of the microphone to have you here. Thanks so much. 
And I tell you what, it's it's an extreme pleasure to be with you guys. And and since you don't want to try it, I'll give it a go. <laughs> Yes. How's that? that was everything we would have wanted. Ted, you've got a really, really incredible movie out. The Price of Fame, the story of Ted, million-dollar man, DiBiase. The movie will open nationwide for one night only on Tuesday, November 7th at 7 p.m. local time at over 600 select movie theaters nationwide. The tickets can be purchased. More info can be found at fathomevents.com. Ted, I had a chance to screen the film, and I want to tell you outright I really enjoyed it. But here's what struck me most, and I think what, why I think people will be so moved about it. It's not just like a retrospective of your life and career in wrestling with you know interviews with all the big names, video highlights, all that. That stuff is there. Not just also a focus on, let's say, the impact of the spiritual shift in your life through finding Jesus Christ. But there was something there deeper, something there about fathers and sons and grace and forgiveness that touched me, made me want to pick up the phone and call my own dad in all sincerity was that part of your mission and the message you wanted to get over in this film? A- absolutely. Uh, you know, my, my dad had, which was a stepfather, had such an impact on my life. Uh, you know, Mike DiBiase uh, came into my life when I was five, and I had him for 10 years. And, uh, you know, my dad was not only a professional wrestler, but uh, he had a storied career at the University of Nebraska. He uh, eight-time, eight eight, you know, eight-year eight letter, another eight he lettered eight times, four years in football, four in wrestling, uh, was a heavyweight conference champion three consecutive years. And um, he's a kid who came out of, you know, uh, an ethnic neighborhood, very, you know, DiBiase's Italian, so South Omaha, Nebraska, ethnic neighborhood. And one of the things he always told me when I was young was he said, son, he says, you know, uh, he says, don't follow the crowd and do what everybody else is doing. That's easy. That takes no courage. He said, be a leader, not a follower, uh, be the head, not the tail. He said, and if you're willing to work hard, you can be anything you want to be if you're willing to pay the price. And, uh, that always stuck with me. And, you know, even after his death, um, it stuck with me. And of course, you know, as you, as you see the story and I don't want to give the whole story away, but, uh, you know, I rose to fame in the wrestling industry, uh, you know, by doing all the things my dad encouraged me to do. Uh, but you know, I got caught up in the uh, the whirlwind of of being famous and kind of like that old rock and roll song, "Drug, Sex, and Rock and Roll." We on the world like rock stars, uh, literally, not not just uh, city to city and state to state, but country to country. And um, you know, in the midst of all that, you know, uh, you know, I had I fell, and when I was confronted with the with the fall, uh, when I, my wife confronted me. I had to take a hard look in the mirror, and I mean, it's just almost instantaneous. It's like I have put at risk the most important things in my life, all for the sake of stroking my ego, and that's hard to face. Uh, but I, but I did, and that's you know, and again, you know, going forward, you know, I, you know, whether you are a person of faith or not, uh, you know, whether you're a Christian or you're not, there's something in this film for you. Uh, and, and I want, I'm hoping that people can walk away from this film realizing that, you know, they're making money and having a, a lot of good things, uh, you know, they'll satisfy you for a little while, but in the long run, you're not going to find happiness and peace in your life with that stuff. Uh, I have realized that 
uh, nothing brings me more satisfaction and peace in my life. But to know, I mean, I, people have put it to me this way. They say, Ted, are you really a multimillionaire? And I go, no, I'm not. And I said, but here's what I have. I have the love and respect of my wife today. I have the love and respect of my children today. And I have the unbelievable pleasure and privilege to watch my grandchildren grow up. And man, you just can't put a price tag on that. Uh, absolutely. And, and the key to this whole film that I kind of want to ask you is there's really deeply personal stuff here. You know, you sort of mentioned all the good and bad, the, the, the sins are out front of maybe some of the stuff you got, got yourself caught into while living this life. You know, you, your son, Ted DiBiase Jr., which we know, of course, is a former WWE superstar, also plays a big role in this film. What were the conversations like beforehand with you and your family about being so open and putting this out there to the world? Well, again, it's, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's about, it's transparency. And, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't do this, but what I, what I have come to understand, again, I've been in, I've been in a ministry for 17 years. Uh, I've been, I've been, I've been telling the story that's now going to be seen visually for, for many, many years. And one of the things that I get complimented on by men all the time is that transparency it's it's we're uh, some of them are amazed and some of them are like oh my gosh you know you were so transparent so you know vulnerable and um <clears throat> you put a bunch of women in a room and you know you give them 20 minutes and they're pouring out their lives to each other but a bunch of men you know pride holds them back you know their life might be falling apart but they're not gonna they're not gonna you know uh cough it up but uh when I came to that place of brokenness in my life where I realized that I had put the most important things at risk and had been so selfish, it was the, it was, I did an about face. And again, I went, I went back to the values that I was raised on and, um, and, and realized, you know, I, you know, I can use this to help a lot of other people. And so, yeah, it's, you know, you're, you're putting it out there for the world to see, but um, I think that, I think the payoff is huge. Uh, Ted, I'm sure that you get this a lot from people around my age. Ryan's a couple years older than me. I'm 34, where you were one of the soundtracks of my childhood and many other people. And I think that's probably pretty cool, right? I mean, grew up watching you. You were one of the larger than life, colorful figures of that the late 80s, mid 80s, early 90s run in WWF. And obviously your career extended past that. But that was my childhood. And that's what I identify with. And it's so cool to be talking with you now. And I'm sure you get that a lot. And you know, one of the things that I think was so unique about you and your character and, and, and the way you portrayed yourself, you had one of the greatest entrance themes in the history of professional wrestling. I am not embarrassed, but proud to say that I know all the words to it and I could I could do it right now. I won't, but I could <laughs> do it right now. How did that come about? Because this was in an age right where I know Michaels ended up doing it later, singing his theme song. But you talked out the lyrics to your theme song, the famous money, money, money at the start that me and all my friends loved. How did that come about? The process of your theme music ended up being the way that it, it turned out to be. Well, well, you know, what's what's really amazing. And I don't know how many people know this, but. Uh, not only my theme music, but a number of the other entrance songs that you heard were were written and done by Jimmy Hart, including mine. Jimmy Hart came up with the lyric and came up, you know, came, he came up with the with with the words and and we went in and, and produced it, you know. And I they said, I said well, well, you're going to sing your own song. I said. <laughs> you, know, you might, I might talk my song, but you know, you, you know, 
uh, what's really funny is my biological father was a singer and I, you know, I couldn't carry a tune if it had handles on it, but <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Hart wrote that and he wrote a number of, I think he wrote Hulk Hogan's entrance, uh, and, and several others. And, you know, of course, Jimmy was, um, I can't remember the name of the, the band he was in. Uh, they, they were a one hit wonder, um, uh, keep on dancing. That was Jimmy Hart. I don't know when if you guys you, remember when, that song. When, when you first read the lyrics to the song, everybody's got a price, everybody's going to pay, I'm the million dollar man, and I always get my way, et cetera. When you first read that, like, what was your thought? Were you like, eh, this is kind of hokey, or were you like, you know what, I'm going to make this pretty cool? Like, what did you think when you first saw it? Well, you know, it's like, uh, I just, I kind of laughed, really, and I said, well, and that's what it is. I mean, I, you know, what Vince did with wrestling is was genius. I mean, he took what, you know, was pretty much a blue collar crowd form of entertainment. And he went over the top with it, with the colorful animated characters and he made it family. And, uh, and so I, so I, 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 I got it. It's like, okay, I'm like wrestling's snidely whiplash, you know, with the boisterous laugh and uh, almost like if I could have a handlebar mustache and I can, I'm going to tie the maiden to the, you know, to the train track. Um, <laughs> That was that was me, and and a, a lot of fans will come to autograph signings that I do, and they'll say, "No, please don't be mis- offended, Mr. DiBiase, but I hated your guts." And I just laugh and I go, "Thank you. Uh, that means I did my job well." <laughs> that was the whole point. Well, Ted, something the movie does a great job in getting into, and any any you know hardcore wrestling historians know this that the gimmick, the million dollar man, was given to you by Vince McMahon, and he and, you know sought you out for it. And the the whole idea was that it was something he felt would have been perfect for him had he been a performer at that time. What kind of pressure did that add, knowing that you know you're not getting just a push, you're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars essentially pushed in your pocket. You're also getting the push that Vince would have given to himself. Yeah, well, it was, uh, it was pretty overwhelming at first. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, I, and I, I, the only reason I knew that this would have been his deal is uh, Pat Patterson, who at the time was his right-hand man, a uh, very knowledgeable uh, guy in our business uh, who you know, did help Vince map out the the storylines but um you know in my first meeting with vince uh, yeah he left the room for a moment had to take a phone call and and patterson looked at me and he said ted he says if vince were going to be a character in his own show this is it it's almost you're his alter ego and if you think about it as you watch the show and after i left for a while and vince began to put himself in the show a little more he essentially did become the character. No, no question about it. That, that, that almost like you set the model, the blueprint for, for something he had an idea of. He saw it and he sort of took it upon himself. But the, the coolest part was obviously you were living the life. You were living the gimmick. I mean, the character Ric Flair was kind of playing in real life. You were also kind of playing that across the tracks on WWE. What kind of heat did that draw when you're going first class? You got, you got Virgil by your side and Vince is wanting you to live this part in person while everybody else is right paying their own way, bunking up in, in, in crappy hotel rooms. We've heard the, the shoot interviews many times. How did that f- make you with the boys in the backstage? Well, you know, I, you know and I, I, you know, initially I kind of thought that I said, well, you know, it's like I'm going to have a, a lot of heat, you know, both out there and, and in, in the back. But uh, you know what? I think, I think most of the guys 
ended up looking at it like, look, you know what? What an incredible break. But if I'd have been given the opportunity, I would have taken it and I would have run with it. You know, they just, uh, I think that was it more than anything. Uh, you know, and I was, and I wasn't, uh, you know, I was, I've always been a very aim, amicable person and I, you know, I didn't, you know, like flaunt it, you know, if you will. And, uh, so I think, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have nearly as much heat in the back as I thought I would. Absolutely. Well, Ted, the, the big build when your character launched, the big feud, the big angle, obviously was what went into WrestleMania four with Hogan and Andre with you attempting to buy that belt. And the real kickoff, the real turning point was that February 5th, 1988 WWE, the main event show that was broadcast nationally. That drew a 15.2 rating for anybody listening. 33 million viewers. Ted, there's only been one NBA Finals game in the history of basketball that had more viewers watching live than that moment. Is this like maybe the juiciest angle in history on that alone? I mean, how do you even describe what's that like when people around the country, not just wrestling fans, are so tied into this? Well, it was it was a very special night, you know, especially for me. I mean, uh, you know, having been raised in the wrestling industry and having uh, it be such a big part of my life and, and then to think that, you know, on the on the day that wrestling is on live nationwide network television for the very first time since the 1950s, I am an intricate part of the of the main show, of the main event, and um, it really was a night that launched the career, that launched the the character. Um, obviously, it was the setup for WrestleMania four, and then. Of course, post WrestleMania four, you know, I traveled all over the country in tag matches with uh, Andre the Giant against Hulk and Randy and Hulk and a number of guys. But uh, it was it really did. Yeah, I mean, people ask me they'll, they'll say, you know, if you could pick one night, and I said, you know, it's hard to pick one night when you wrestled for 19 years, you know. But there are a few land, you know, few markers, and I always include that as one of the markers in my career, no doubt. What was Hulk like to work with? Hulk was great. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, when they say, when somebody asks you what's a tough match, well, you don't really have a tough match. I mean, you're, you know, because you're not in a real contest. Uh, but a tough match would be wrestling with somebody that's, you know, that's not really well mechanically inclined. It's like you, you've got to work around him to get a match out of it. Um, but Hulk was not that way at all. Um, you know, Hulk was, Hulk knew his gimmick and he worked it well, very well. I'm going to give you my opinion here, Ted, and I'm not looking to lead you towards an answer. This is not sort of like a gotcha thing. I say this on our podcast all the time. So I sort of have to be honest with you in this moment. It's always sort of bothered me that Hulk has always, and it doesn't matter what, what the reason was, whether it was Vince, whether it was Hulk himself, and I don't claim to have been on the inside or know what happened. This is just as someone who's been watching my entire life for 30 years. It always bothered me that Hulk was always involved in moments that, in my opinion as a fan, I felt like he shouldn't have been involved in. WrestleMania four main events, right? You and Randy for the championship at the end of the championship tournament. I remember watching it in the aftermath and thinking, why did Hulk have to get involved at the end of that match? Why couldn't it have just been Randy and Ted? Why couldn't they have had their moment? And then after Randy won, why did Hogan have to get in the ring and celebrate with Randy? Why couldn't it have just been Randy? 
Did you ever harbor any of those? And again, I'm not trying to get you to say something like lead you towards something here. This is just honestly my opinion. I've always wanted to ask this question. Was that anything anything that ever bothered you, that sort of thing? Because I watched it and I was like, damn, like, come on, man. (laughs) No, it it never bothered me because I got it. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, at that time, you know, the it's kind of like people have asked me, you know, like, well, how do they determine who's going to be the winner and the loser and and all that? And I said, well, it's like, how did they determine who's going to be a star in a movie? You know, it's it's based on how that actor or actress projects a character and the amount of charisma that they have. And and uh, Hogan had it. And Hogan was he was the guy. You know, just like after after Hogan, you know, uh, was Ultimate Warrior for a while, and then you had uh, you know, Stone Cold, and then you know, and then you had The Rock. Uh, you know, bigger than life people, but he was, you know, he was the guy at, at that time. And so, the storyline again, you know, it still revolved around around him because he was the biggest draw. Uh, you know, it's like. Uh, that's why there was a lot, a lot of tag team matches, you know, uh, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage against me and Andre, um, you know, because in a lot of markets, you know, we wouldn't have done as well if it had been just Randy versus Ted, you know, just that's because of the size of the characters that, that Hogan and Andre both had. And it's kind of like the rub. It's like, uh, when a new actor comes on the scene and they see potential and you see him in the movie. And then the next thing you know, uh, he's, he's a, you know, he's a co-star along some big name. Well, that rub is helping to elevate him to the next level. And and that's what they were doing. Ted, you, what you, was Andre like behind the scenes, Ted? Andre was great. Andre was a gentle giant. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, I was, one of the questions I was asked, you know, if you heard that Andre was, very hard to deal with, you know, in, in the latter years. And I said, well, here's what you don't understand about Andre. I mean, the guy was seven feet, four inches tall, weighed 450 pounds, and he was always looking for comfort. I mean, you know, here's a guy who everywhere he goes, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, Andre always flew first class. I mean, number, you know, number, number one, he couldn't get in a coach seat, but even sitting in a first class seat, you know, because of his size, he wasn't that comfortable. And, you know, and then you, you add celebrity to it. And then you add the celebrity of being that guy, you know, that was seen by, you know, most of the country. And now he's, the, now he's a, a, uh, a, a bigger star. Where's he hide? I mean, it's like, you know, I could probably uh, put on a hat and, and, and sunglasses and, and, and sneak through a lot of places, unseen and unnoticed where is Andre the giant going to hide there's nowhere for him to hide and so he was constantly bombarded and I remember when I was traveling with him uh you know we would go back to a hotel and you know uh he he had somebody else that traveled with him that took care of a lot of his needs but you know we would go and we would eat and and uh, I can't tell you how many times people would come right up to the table uh and where's the one place you don't want to be bothered when you're eating dinner, especially if you're off in the back and especially if, if you seem to be with, with friends and what have you, but you know, some people just don't know better. And, and Andre tried to be polite. He says, you know, you know, you wait for me out front. And it was just, it was amazing. I mean, I remember one woman who just went off like, well, I spent all this money and I bought tickets and I bought all this merchandise. And I looked at her and I said, lady, and you got exactly what you paid for. 
you know, what you paid for doesn't give you the right to to infringe on a man's private time. No, no. And no. and so that, that was that became a problem for Andre. And uh, uh, so you know, uh, I think I think people need to give him a little more grace because he was just constantly bombarded. And uh, if it was getting old to me, I, I, I can't I couldn't imagine how 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 he was handling it all the time. No, absolutely. It's I mean, there's a documentary in the works by HBO and Andre the Giant. There's there's going to be a lot more that we you know we get to hear some stories on, on such an incredible character in person. And and you know, and I mentioned that night in Indianapolis that that launched that feud heading into WrestleMania four. That was such a big moment. Hogan had never been pinned you know clean like that, and the controversy, the twin referees. But then you have that match at four with Savage, and he such a reputation for behind the scenes being such a stickler, planning out matches piece by piece inch by inch, move by move. That match only got 10 minutes because it ended a tournament, but that was really maybe physically his absolute prime, probably yours as well. What was the build like for you behind the scenes with him, knowing how how passionate he can be and making sure every inch is perfect? Well, you know, and I've shared this with some other people, you know, and I, you know, I found that out, which actually kind of surprised me about Randy because like me, he was a second generation. He'd grown up in the business and old school, you, you know, you know, the only thing you knew for certain was the way it was going to end the finish. And, and maybe you would know because you had some history, just how it was going to start, but everything else was generally called on the fly. And I don't know, Randy was just that way. I mean, I don't know if it was like insurance for him to map things out and, all I asked him in the dress, I said, Randy, I said, I know what you, uh, how you like to do things. And I said, um, I'm more than happy to do that. Just give me this liberty. As we're going out there and, and reading the crowd and feeling the crowd, please just give me the latitude that if, if, if as we're going, I, I, I feel something. I, you know, it's kind of like, and, le- you know, let me call a spot. We're going to come back to this. We're always going to come back to the plan, but let me call a spot. And he just, you know, kind of looked at me, and then he he looked over at Elizabeth, who was sitting there. And Elizabeth said, "Randy, you can do that." And he looked at me and goes, "Okay, brother, I can do that." <laughs> <laughs> and and then uh, the best match that Savage and I ever had, I think. Now that was pretty good. I mean, I, the WrestleMania four was good. But we had the, we you know in, in the matches we had after that, we were double booked. We were in Baltimore on a matinee show, and then we were in a cage match in Madison Square Garden that night. So they put us on early in Baltimore, and you know races to the airport. You know the Learjet into LaGuardia, the limousine to the Madison Square Garden, and then we're we're running in the dressing room and lacing our boots and. Uh, so we didn't have time. We did not have the time to sit down and do what Randy likes to do. All we had the time to do was let's 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 figure out how we're going to end this thing. And I'm going to say that was one of the best matches we had because we just did it on the fly. That's awesome. If you get a chance, you can go go back and watch go back and watch that if you can. It's me and Savage in a cage. Matter of fact, it was so good that at the end, you know, the deal was like, uh, you know, it's whoever leaves the cage wins. So you either climb out or you go through the the door. And uh, it, it got so heated that, you know, a fan actually jumped the barricade and climbed up the vent, the, the, the fence along with Virgil. <laughs> 
that was pretty funny. Um, your character, so iconic. Your music, so iconic. The laugh, so iconic. The million-dollar belt, so iconic. Who came up with the idea for the million-dollar belt? Do you still have the original million-dollar belt? Uh I was approached just prior to WrestleMania four because, you know, lead, you know, of course the lead in was, was the Saturday night main event. And, uh, you know, I guess there, uh, there was some thought of, of course, me, uh, winning at WrestleMania four and then having the run with Hogan, just like that. Well, that's, that's kind of one of the things that's pretty much what everybody was expecting to happen because of, of the way they were building my character. So Pat Patterson said to me, he said, Ted, think about this. He says, what if we change this up and you don't win? It blows up in, on, in, in your face. You don't win the tournament. And so since you now don't have the title, you create your own title. Yes. And I, as soon as he said it, I went, do it. I said, because that will put more heat on me. You think about the arrogance of a guy who's like, well, I don't, and I don't need your stinking title. I just create my own, declare myself the million dollar champion. And, 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 and here we go. And, uh, and it, it did, it got me a ton of heat, uh, and, and the belt. Now the belt, the, the actual belt is in the safe in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, Vince McMahon had that belt designed and made, uh, it, uh, better it's jewelers in, uh, in, in, in Connecticut. In uh, what am I tar- trying to think of? The, the most expensive place in the world to live. Greenwich. Uh, where he lived. Greenwich. Greenwich. Yeah. In, Gre- in Greenwich, Connecticut. So, and this guy, Terry Betterich is legitimately a world renowned gemologist and this, this big jewelry store there in the middle of Greenwich. And so they designed this belt. There are 700 stones in the face of the belt. And they are, they're not diamonds, but they're all cubic zirconium, which means they're almost a diamond. And I don't know what almost a diamond means, but I know this. Back in 1987, they were like 50 bucks a piece times 700. There's 35 grand. And so they <laughs> estimated the value of the belt then at about 40 grand. Somebody calculated that today in today's market with the inflation of everything, they estimate its value at about 200 grand. So I don't have that belt. (laughs) (laughs) I have a, I have a traveling replica that I carry with me everywhere and take pictures with. Um, Ted, you know, you've, your transparency and your candor is unbelievable. So I'm hoping that we get an honest answer to this question. That was fascinating what you just said that Pat sort of came to you. Pat Patterson was like, how about instead of you going over in the main events of WrestleMania four and winning the belt, we'll do this instead. And you said, that's a great idea. It'll put more heat on my character. I'll be honest with you. If it were me, I would be like, screw the belt. I want to go over to WrestleMania and I want to run with the world championship. Is that a decision? And I feel like you made it for the right reasons. Is that a decision that you ever look back and regret? And maybe you could have said to Pat Patterson, no, I think we should go along with the original plan and you would have had that run with the, uh, with the strap. Well, no, I mean, again, it's, uh, it's, it's a business, you know, and it's a business that I grew up in. So in reality, you know, wrestling championships are, or really they're, 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 they're props. And obviously, you know, you're, you're going to want to have significant, significant people carrying those, those titles. So they're, they have that much, that, that kind of value. But at the end of the day, 
what is best for the business and what is going to make us the most money. And that's the try, that's the way that I tried to look at it all the time. There's a second generation wrestler so, speaking right there. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Absolutely. Ted, <laughs> you've been so generous with your time. One quick one on the way out. You were also the fourth member of the NWO in 1996. I don't know if everybody remembers this as quickly. The original spokesperson for the group before Eric Bischoff. Obviously, that was a company run a lot different from WWE. But what's your best memory from those days? You were not wrestling at the time, but you were still a large presence when Hogan, Nash, Hall did you know something that really changed the business at a key time. Well, you know, it's just one of those things. Uh, you know, when I when I left the WWF at that time, I really wasn't unhappy with the company. Uh, it was just that Vince had Vince had 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 put me back on the road uh, in terms of, you know, I was on the road now. Before when I first went back to work, I was just a, I was a manager and a commentator, which didn't require me to be on the road. But Vince wanted to put me on the road with Sid Vicious, and then I think with with Steve Austin. Uh, with Sid, you know, uh, I don't know, probably more to help Sid keep his oars in the water. Uh, but uh, it was just, uh, you know, based on what had happened in my life and, uh, you know, me re reestablishing the strength in my family and what have you, you know, being on the road was, was a, was a bad place. You know, it's like, it's kind of like if you, if you want to, if you want to stay sober, stay out of the bar. So if you want to stay out of out of the trouble, Ted, stay off the road. And so my decision to go to WCW was more based on that. And in hindsight, and Vince and I since have had the conversation, and he told me, he said, man, he said, you should have just come to me and talked to me, and we'd have worked something out. Uh, but I just figured that Vince was a businessman. He's going to do what's best for his company. And he wanted me on the road, and I didn't want to be there. So that's why I gave my notice and uh, ended up with WCW. Now, I, you know, I, I'm I'm sorry, but it was probably the 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 poor the most poorly run organization I ever worked for. You know, and the fact that they could get something that hot just absolutely amazed me. And you know, uh, but what you know, in, in the end, you know, Bischoff, who was running the, the the deal, saw how hot it was getting, and chose to interject himself in the position he had hired me for. And I told him that I said, I'm not an idiot. I said, you know, I didn't just fall off the truck. So, you know, I, I realized that I was going out there for a couple of weeks and I had nothing to say. I'm just standing in the corner like Virgil. And that's what I told him. I said, I, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a, uh, you know, 19 year career to end, end, end my career as being, uh, the Hulkster's belt boy. And I said, so if you don't have anything for me to do seriously, then just send me home because you have to still pay me. <laughs> and so that's what we did. And they sent me home. And then they, uh, when they did bring me back, they bring me back at this, as a Steiner's uh, manager who were baby faces. And I think that was because I was starting to, uh, I was starting to make appearances on Christian television. So it kind of kills the gimmick, you know, that you're the bad guy. If you're being seen all over Christian television, telling your story, um, and I don't know that it mattered, uh, you know, I mean, it's still, it's just, it's still wrestling, you know, why couldn't I be the character? But anyway, uh, uh, when it was over, it was over and I was glad it was over. <laughs> Ted, you've been super generous with your time. I've got one more question for you. We're going to get you out of here, but I have to ask this, Brian and I have talked about this ad nauseum. 
We've been watching wrestling our whole lives. We would watch things in WCW, and I would watch this and be like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on? Why are they doing this? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And they're portraying it like it makes sense. Was this something that like only you and a select few knew? Or was this something that like people in the locker room would sit back and watch this and be like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on out there right now? No, it was, you know, I think with all of us, all of us that had any any sense, we're watching and going, well, you know, what, what the heck are they doing? And again, like I said, when I went to WCW, it was the the most poorly run organization that I ever worked for. It was just amazing. Well, Ted, we we could do this for three four hours. You are a busy man. The film, <laughs> The Price of Fame, the story of Ted Million Dollar Man DiBiase. The movie opens nationwide one night only, Tuesday, November 7th, 7 p.m. local time, 600 select movie theaters nationwide. Check out fathomevents.com. Look, it's faith, it's family, it's also wrestling. We got Roddy Piper in there, we got George the Animal Steel, a lot of great interviews with some great legends. Ted, thanks so much for your time. We're going to find out by seeing this film what exactly is the price of fame. Thank you, my friend, and appreciate your time. Thank you. Many thanks to Ted DiBiase. That was a real pleasure to to really have the time and, and dig deep and go back through history with a true legend and, and get those inside nuggets, get what his mindset was. You know, uh, accepting an opportunity from Vince McMahon to, to really have a gimmick of a lifetime, the kind of push and opportunity that very few get. And he pulled it off well, despite the damages that the lifestyle did to his personal life in the background, which is really interesting and why his film, The Price of Fame, has such an important and, and really enduring message in it. So I encourage everybody out there to check that out. And if you're looking for some good old school MDM content to sort through, if you didn't grow up like I did in the peak of the 80s when 33 million or so people were watching the main event on NBC on a Friday night in February 1988. By the way, I mentioned that that little nugget there. Only one NBA Finals game ever drew, drew more live viewers. By the way, that was Game 6, 98 Finals. Michael Jordan shutting down the Jazz, which what we thought was the last shot of his career, his final game as a Chicago Bull. Think about that. That's the only NBA game in history that drew more people watching than that Hogan versus Andre match. Go back and check that out. It's not just the the twin referees with Dave and Earl, Earl Hebner and not just seeing Hulk Hogan actually pinned for the first time during that Hulkamania stretch. It's, it's DiBiase at top form as a heel, buying the title from Andre. You see a, pro, a promo that Hogan cuts afterwards in the locker room where he's basically in tears and he can't believe it. I mean, that's top shelf stuff. That's really where the argument comes in there that we may have seen right there the juiciest angle of all time in WWE history. It doesn't get talked about on the same level, right, as like the mega powers exploding or anything that happened during the Attitude Era or even the initial build to WrestleMania three with Hogan and Andre. But heading into WrestleMania four, which is kind of a forgotten WrestleMania, right? It's, it's a little bit too long. It's four hours. The matches aren't top quality. But that build with Hogan and Andre heading toward that rematch to open the tournament was really as big as anything else from that stretch in the 1980s. It just so happened that WWE swerved us, right? That Hogan and Andre kicking off that championship tournament in the double countout, double disqualification, taking themselves out of it. When you're watching that in real time, you suddenly go, oh, wait, wait, Hogan and Andre are out. They're not leaving this pay-per-view with the title. 
what's going to happen here? Is it going to go to Savage? Is it going to go to DiBiase? It really created some real intrigue. And while DiBiase and Savage only had 10 minutes in that main event of WrestleMania 4, which was aforementioned during the interview, that's a really good time capsule to see how good both superstars are. Go back and watch that 9-10 minute match there with Hogan interrupting in the finish to give Savage the belt. You're seeing top prime Ted DiBiase, top prime Randy Savage in the ring. Very, very great stuff, which kicked off that very memorable run for Ted DiBiase. So thanks again to Ted for joining us on In This Corner. And a final reminder... One day late, it's coming, but you're going to enjoy it. Our This Week in WWE podcast, looking back at what happened on Raw and SmackDown, looking ahead to Sunday's TLC pay-per-view. we got a great chat with Kalisto. we got the Silver King. We've got the Greek, the handsome one, Nick Costos. Hit us up on social media. Get out there and subscribe, rate, review, and you know how we do it. You know how we exit this podcast, right? We exit with two words out there for all of the listeners. You don't like what I'm saying? Well, you can suck. No, no, John. John, no, 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 no. Word life on that, Cena. We were instead talking about this. We out.